Today we are concluding our series on Married Life Matters. And in week one, remember Pastor Ben took us to Genesis to look at the marriage as God intended it. And then in week two, he took us to Ruth to answer the question, do I say I do again? And today we're going to be going to Ephesians because marriage needs the uh, best of both people. Now, I recently read about a groom's parents who accompanied their son and their soon-to-be daughter-in-law to meet with her pastor at the church to go sign some pre-wedding ceremony papers. And while filling out the form, the son was reading aloud a few of the questions. And when he got to the last one, which read, Are you entering this marriage at your own will? He looked over at at his fiancée. Put down yes, she said. The Apostle Paul is going to take us through one of the most challenging relationship passages in the Bible, husband and wife. Does this relationship have to be represented by conflict and negative emotions? Is Paul putting down women and making them less than their husbands? And what if you're not even married? What if you're single? Can you just skip over these verses? Well, the first thing that I'd like for us to do is answer the question, what is the purpose of marriage? It would be easy to say that the main purpose of marriage is so that we aren't lonely. But I don't believe that that's what the Bible teaches. I'm sure you remember from two weeks ago when Pastor Ben took us through to the passage in Genesis chapter 2, and then that's when God had Adam naming all the animals. You remember that? Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. Punxsutawney Phil and his wife Phyllis, so that Adam could see that each one of them had a mate, a partner, and that he himself was alone. Now, don't hear something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying Pastor Ben's teaching was wrong. What I'm saying is that if you took that as the main point of his message, then you probably need to go back and listen to his sermon again. Some people would make the case for marriage being mainly about procreation. Again, I don't believe that's what the Bible is teaching us. The Catholic Church, for instance, teaches the importance of procreation by pointing to verses in Scripture where God tells Adam and Eve and later Noah and his sons and their wives that they should be fruitful and multiply so that the earth would be first populated and later repopulated. Again, don't hear something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Catholic Church says that marriage is only about procreation. Now, others would say that the main point of getting married is to become fulfilled as a person. I think by now you're getting my drift. The Bible does not teach that the main reason for becoming married is to become fulfilled as a person. Pastor Ben popped that bubble in week one of our series in Married Life Matters. So don't walk away from this service and say, Pastor Scott said that marriage is not about that it's not good for people to be alone, and that he said that it's not about procreation, and that he said marriage doesn't make me a better or more fulfilled person. Marriage encompasses all of these things. God stated very clearly that it is not good for a man to be alone. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a, a good, uh, finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them, who is he talking about? 
God created them, right? From the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall not leave his father and his mother. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Get that right. And be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Or how about Proverbs 31.10? An excellent wife, who can find her? For her worth, is, uh, her worth is far above jewels. And then one more, Proverbs 12.4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. When a man and a woman covenant to walk through life together, through good times and bad, through sickness and in health, they will become better people. It's inevitable. We become people who make and com- uh, keep our commitments no matter what life brings. We come into marriage as self-centered people, but over time we put our spouse ahead of ourselves. And that even leads to us to treat other people that way, even people that we aren't married to. And of course, the world would never have become populated if there were no procreation. What about now that there's over 8 billion people in the world? Well, all it takes is for one generation to stop having children, and the world would be doomed. Even a publication as liberal as the New York Times wrote an article just last fall stating that, quote, if everybody stopped having babies, the effect would be not to help humanity, but to end it. But first and foremost, the marriage union between a man and a woman is about showing us the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, which is the church. The church is made up of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and have received eternal life. Jesus, who is the bridegroom, has sacrificially and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. We'll see that in our passage today. And just as there was a betrothal period in biblical times during which the bride and the groom were separated until the wedding, so is the bride of Christ, the church, separated from her bridegroom, Jesus, during the church age. And that's the time where we're living now. The bride's responsibility, so our responsibility, during the betrothal period is to be faithful to the groom. We, as the church, are to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, at the rapture, and I need to stop right there and explain what I'm talking about, the rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away. If anybody ever asks you, what does the word rapture mean, it means to snatch away. So the rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away all believers from the earth in order to make way for his righteous judgment to be poured out on earth during the tribulation period. The rapture is primarily spoken about in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And at the time of the rapture, God will first resurrect all believers who have died. So anybody who has died up to this point who had put their faith and trust in Jesus, he will give them glorified bodies because even if they died the day before the rapture, their body was in a state of decay. And then he'll take them from the earth. And along with all of us who are still alive at the time of the rapture, and we will also be given glorified bodies. 
Because we all want that too, right? I mean, first of all, we want to be with Jesus. But wouldn't it be great to have a body that is not ravaged by sin and by uh, decay and falling downstairs? And yes. So let me take you to the passage in 1 Thessalonians, first of all, that talks about the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So the rapture, at the rapture, the bride of Jesus, which is a church, whether dead or alive, will be united with the bridegroom, which is Jesus, and the official wedding ceremony will take place with it, the eternal union of Jesus and his bride. That union will happen and last forever. And that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 19 and 21. Well, our primary passage this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, which Pastor Chen read to us this morning. I'm going to focus on 22 through 29. This passage, which is written by the Apostle Paul, that's the human author who put uh, pen to paper, who is the real author of all Scripture. Come on, you know, it's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit inspired men to write these passages. So the Apostle Paul is the one who was inspired to write this. It's one of the most comprehensive passages in the Bible about marriage. And I want you to remember when we're reading this, this is not what I think about marriage. This is what the Holy Spirit guided the Apostle Paul to write. This is God's definition of how a marriage works at its best, as defined by the one who invented men, who invented women, and who invented marriage. So let's begin with that first passage that's talking to the wives, because it's the first one in the passage. And as you're turning there into Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to do that. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. You can also be looking that up on your electronic device. And while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 5, let me share with you what I learned about the definition of an atheist. Did you know that believing only 12.5% of the Bible makes you an eighth theist? Some of you are laughing, some of you are groaning, and I hear some of you asking Siri if one-eighth equals 12.5%. All right, beginning at verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, subject yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, the first thing that we need to do is to remember one of the most basic rules of understanding the Bible, and that is to take things in context. So in Ephesians chapter 5, instead of saying, let's start all of our understanding at verse 22, let's look at the big picture of Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> We're told uh, in this chapter to be imitators of God, and then he gets specific on how we can do that. 
Uh, the first thing he says is to love each other, to be imitators of God by not being greedy or immoral. Uh, we're told to not allow ourselves to be deceived, to not act like you did before you started to follow Christ, to be wise and make the most of your time. Very specifically, he's, he's telling us to uh, be imitators of God by not getting drunk, but allowing ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit instead of with alcohol. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we're also told to be thankful. And in the verse right before the instructions for the wife, God says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, other translations say, and three of the most uh, popular versions being the King James Version, the New International Version, and the ESV, it says to submit to one another. The translation that I was reading from the New American Standard Bible says to be subject to one another. They basically mean the same thing. But ladies, be honest. You don't like to hear wives submit to your husbands, do you? But if you take the verse in context... All Christians are told to submit to one another in verse 21. And even we're told throughout, taking context in a great big picture, the whole Bible, we see where God the Son, Jesus, submits himself to the will of God the Father. Now, there are verses, like I said, all over the Bible, but let me just quote two of those to you. The first is from John chapter 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative... But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, says, I'm going to follow the will of my Holy Father, God the Father, and I'm not going to say anything that he didn't tell me to say. And then in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 39, just setting the scene here, this is when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives and he's called his uh, three most intimate disciples aside with him to pray with him. And Jesus went a little beyond them, beyond Peter, James, and John, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He was saying, Is there any way to accomplish salvation for the people of the world other than me taking on the sins of everyone who has ever lived. And then he finished that by saying, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now let's go deeper into our passage in Ephesians 5 on how a wife should act towards her husband. Let me share with you just a little bit of Greek. This is the original language that the New Testament was written in as it applies to this passage. As Paul is writing to wives, telling them to be subject to their husbands, he is speaking specifically to husbands and wives, and not generally about men and women. The Greek word used means your own. In other words, wives are not told to be in submission to every man, but to their own husband. In addition to not taking verses out of context, another very important rule of biblical interpretation is to remember that God never contradicts himself. <clears throat> so uh, God is not going to have written in Galatians one thing, and then in the very next book, the book of Ephesians, contradict himself. 
And in Galatians 3.28, we're told, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. What did he just say? He says, I don't care what nationality or race you are. Everyone is just as important as the other one. I don't care um, if you are even a slave or a slave owner. The slave is just as important in the body of Christ as the other. And he says the same thing about male and female. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You have the same importance to God. But that being said, men and women are not identical and do not have the same roles. The roles of men and women are complementary to each other in the marriage relationship, just as the different personalities of the Trinity are complementary to each other. Even though Jesus, the Son of God, submitted his will to the will of God the Father, that does not mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father. And neither are wives inferior to their husbands. God has designed husbands to provide leadership in the home and wives to support their husbands. He has chosen to order life this way, and we need to trust him, trust that God, who knows all things, knows what is best. In our culture, many people don't like the idea of roles or willing submission There are a couple of reasons for this. First, people don't understand that Paul's teaching for women is balanced with an even stronger command or mandate for men in verses 25 through 29. And second, they fail to understand that Christian marriage is meant to be a partnership, an intimate relationship, and a deep and mutually gratifying friendship. By showing the relationship between Jesus and the church as a model for marriage, Paul shows a beautiful picture of the intimate, personal, and loving relationship between our Savior and his redeemed people. Yes, Jesus is our head. We're told that all throughout the New Testament. But we are also called fellow heirs with him in Romans eight seventeen. And even though Jesus is called our master in Jude 1.4, he is also called our friend in John 15.15. Let me share with you a quote from John Stott. John Stott was a pastor and a theologian and an author of many commentaries on the Bible. He said, we have to be very careful not to overstate this biblical teaching on authority. And let me just pause for a moment and remind you that, again, the bigger context of of Ephesians 5 and even 6 is not just talking about the relationship of husbands and wives. We're also told about the relationship of parents to their children, children to their parents, and also in that day, uh, slaves to masters, what we would probably interpret Uh, more aptly today as bosses and their employees. And so Stott says it doesn't mean that the authority of husbands, parents, and masters is unlimited or that wives, children, and workers are required to give unconditional obedience. No, he says, the submission required is submission to God's authority delegated to human beings. If therefore they misuse their God-given authority, then our duty is no longer to submit, but to refuse to do so. Let me give you a couple of examples. If, um, if a child 
Uh, let's say a, a husband told his wife, I don't want you taking the kids to church. I don't want you to teach them about Jesus. She no longer is under his authority in that area. If a boss tells his, his employee, I want you to start cooking the books. I want to embezzle some money and I'll give you a take of it if you follow through with this. That employee is not to submit to the leadership of the, the boss in that instance. Let's now look at the husbands. This is in Ephesians chapter 5 again, and we'll begin now at verse 25 and read through 29. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. So in the same way that a wife is to support and honor her husband through her genuine respect, the husband is to cherish and honor his wife. He is to love his wife with true love. Okay, I know some of you are thinking it, so let's all say it together. Love, true love. Those of you who have no idea what the rest of us are doing, go home and watch The Princess Bride. Now, at first glance, reading that the husband is supposed to love his wife, it seems so elementary, doesn't it, so that it seems easy? But what, when the quality of love is described, we realize what a heavy burden of responsibility is placed on the husband in his leadership role. This is not easy. Paul is referring to agape love. There's another Greek word for you this morning. That is the kind of love that Jesus shows to the church. It is a kind of love that seeks the highest of good for the other person, even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. Isn't that the kind of love that Jesus showed when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for us? That's why Jesus is the highest standard that husbands are to aspire to. In verses 25 through 27, Christ-like love is shown through surrendering and sanctifying and forgiving and honoring. Following Jesus' example of self-sacrificial love for the church, a husband's life will move him to surrender his preferences and to let go of his self-seeking desires in order to meet his wife's needs. In submission to God, every husband must be willing to give up whatever is needed for the sake of his wife. Husbands, if your love for your wife is not sacrificial, she knows it. If you are unwilling to give up what is, un, what is necessary for her benefit, she can tell. And it makes her responsibility of submission to your leadership that much more difficult. This will most likely lead the relationship between husband and wife to spiral downward. But there is a solution. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. 
What does it mean in verse 26 that this kind of love from a husband to his wife will cause her to be sanctified? Well, first of all, do you understand what sanctified means? It means through the process of time, through growth, that we become more and more like Jesus. So it means that the husband will encourage his wife's spiritual growth just like Jesus' relationship with his church promotes spiritual growth. It might mean freeing up time for your wife to exercise her own gifts and talents and interests. It definitely means helping her through her hurts and caring about what matters to her, standing with her and raising a family, especially when times are difficult. Verse 26 also signifies forgiveness. Now, I'm not implying that the wife needs forgiveness and the husband doesn't. Rather, this means that husbands need to practice grace and not hold a grudge. My personal belief is that when a husband and wife are at an impasse, it is the husband's responsibility to sincerely apologize first. Be the leader. Open a can of man and accept responsibility for your hurtful actions. Now, let me explain what I just said. I was listening to a podcast recently, and the guy who was talking, I think he was a pastor, wanted to run a marathon, but he needed a coach. And so he found this ex-Navy SEAL in his church, and the guy looked like he was still currently a Navy SEAL. And he asked him if he would help him, that he would coach him on how to run a marathon. And his very verbose answer was, yes. So that would-be marathon said, okay, let's start running together. Will you do this with me? And after a couple of weeks, the guy's knees started to really hurt. And so he asked the uh, Navy SEAL, uh, do your knees ever hurt when you're running? And he said, yes. And he said, well, what do you do about it? And the Navy SEAL said, I open a can of man and I keep running. <laughs> Guys, there will be times in your marriage when you just need to open a can of man and just do what you need to do. You're never going to forget that, are you? Even when it's painful, even when you don't want to, even when you think she needs to make the first move, God made you ultimately responsible for leadership in the relationship. So just open a can of man and lead. Lastly, husbands are told to honor their wife. Recognize that she is a precious gift from God. Jesus seeks to display the church in all her glory, and a husband should honor his wife in a way that demonstrates his all-consuming love for her. All right, we've talked about the wives. We've talked about the husbands. What if you're single? The question of a Christian staying single and what the Bible says about believers never marrying, I think is quite often misunderstood. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. That's because Paul himself was single. However, each of us has his own gift from God, one in this way and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now, notice that Paul says that some have the gift of singleness. It's not a curse. And that some have the gift of marriage. That's also not a curse. 
Although it seems that nearly everyone marries, it's not necessarily God's will for everyone to do so. Paul, for example, did not have to worry about the extra responsibilities and problems and stresses that come with marriage and a family. He devoted the rest of his life, after choosing to follow Christ, to spreading the word of God. He would not have been such a useful messenger if he had been married. Let me give you an example. Paul was gone for long stretches of time on his missionary journeys. He also took risks that he probably never would have taken if he were married and had a family. Risks that led to him being beaten and imprisoned and ultimately to lose his life. On the other hand, some people do better as a team, serving God as a couple and a family. Both kinds of people are equally important. It is not wrong to remain single, even for your entire life. And the most important thing in life is not finding a mate and having children, but serving God. Jesus addressed the issue of singleness in Matthew chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. And I'm going to be reading this from the message, which is a paraphrase, because I think the wording will help you understand what is being said. But Jesus said, not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some from birth, seemingly, never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. So according to Jesus, some people have been given the gift of singleness in order to better serve the Lord in some capacity. Some people choose to forego marriage and remain celibate. This corresponds with Paul's reference to those who serve the Lord in their unmarried state in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Singleness should not be viewed as a curse or an indication that there's something wrong with the single man or woman. While most people marry and while the Bible seems to indicate that it is God's will for most people to marry, a single Christian is in no sense a second-class Christian. As 1 Corinthians indicates, singleness is, if anything, a higher or more difficult calling. As with everything else in life, we should ask God for wisdom concerning marriage. Following God's plan, whether that be marriage or singleness, will result in the productivity and joy that God desires for us. And while remaining unmarried, this also means remaining celibate. If you find it impossible to remain celibate, then I find it hard to believe that God has called you to be single. And I also don't think that you can fulfill a higher calling to ministry by being single if you are clearly violating God's commands. Let me share with you some research done on this subject. This was written up by uh, Professor Scott Stanley of the University of Denver. And he writes, A substantial number of practicing Christians believe that living together before marriage is a good idea. That's obviously clearly in violation of God's law. He says at least 41% by one estimate. That's believing single Christians. Although far more non-religious people believe the same thing, 88%, 41% still is not a small group, and it's likely growing over time. 
A recent report from the Institute of Family Studies surveyed people who married for the first time between 2010 and 2019, so just last decade. And they found conclusions similar to those of past studies. Patterns of cohabitation before marriage remain associated with higher odds of divorce. What people often miss, though, is the inertia that comes with moving in together. In essence, he says, cohabitating couples are making it harder to break up before nailing down their commitments. Many of them get stuck in a relationship they might otherwise have moved on from. Consistent with their their theory of inertia, they found that couples that moved in together before engagement were 48% more likely to end their marriages than those who cohabited only after the marriage. They also saw that moving in together for relationship testing or financial convenience is also associated with higher risks of divorce. Now, that's the end of that uh, study that I'm quoting. But here is what one Christian single man has said. One thing people tend to misunderstand is that God always gives the gift of celibacy to make us more available to him not to make us more available to ourselves. So a celibate person should expect to have less time on his hands than a married person, not more. He says God is more demanding than a husband or wife. He continues, another thing that many people fail to realize is that a celibate person remains human. In other words, their desires, both good and base, remain intact. And celibates are just as capable of sexual sins as married persons, both those of the heart and those in outward deed. Now, that was what one Christian man said. Let's take it from the other side. This is what a Christian single woman, this woman in full-time youth ministry, this is what she said. Apart from a direct word from God, I am not convinced that anyone can know they are called to permanent lifelong singleness. Of all the singles in full-time ministry who I have read or know about personally, all have a desire and a hope for marriage. But for one reason or another, it has simply never worked out yet. But they have also come to the realization that their desire for marriage is one more thing that gets to be laid on the altar of living a surrendered life to God. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? One more thing that I can give to God. They have also discovered exceptional grace to live with much joy in undivided devotion. Singleness is one of those things that requires acceptance of the grace God gives you for today and not worry about whether you'll have it tomorrow, the next year, or the next decade. Seasons of life change. I believe that one can live in obedience, acceptance, and contentment for the present season, trusting God to prepare them for other seasons as they may come. God rarely, if ever, gives us the spotlight into the future. What I think she's saying here is, I know that God has called me to be single now. I don't know that that's going to be true 5 or 10 or 20 years from now. Continuing on, she said, however, I understand wanting to know. I questioned God ceaselessly in my late teens and early 20s until I realized that the answer he was giving me was, trust me and wait. We would like to imagine that if God said, single forever, we would be able to breathe a sigh of relief, 
write off all the hassle of romantic relationships or even the hope thereof, and go on our merry way of serving him completely without another backward glance. But she said, if his answer is marriage, would that change anything? Are you going to abandon your desire and focus to live a life devoted to God to begin seeking high and low for Mr. or Miss Wright? Or will you remain committed to God's call on your life, serving him wholeheartedly until such time as he sees fit to bring your mate into your life? That's the end of the quote. My advice to those of you who are not married but don't feel by God to remain single your whole life is this. Focus on becoming the person that God has called you to be. Don't waste time and energy on being sad or frustrated about your situation. And don't spend more time and energy on finding Mr. or Miss Wright than on serving God. Be patient. Don't lower your standards. For God's sake, please don't lower your standards. God will reward your patience, maybe with a spouse and maybe with untold blessings. Christ and his bride, that illustration applies whether you are married or not. So what? What difference does this make tomorrow morning? Well, if you're married now, love like Jesus does. Put your spouse's needs above your own. Help your spouse be a better Christ follower through sacrificial love. If you're single now, focus on your relationship with God not on finding a spouse. Use that extra time and energy for ministry. And if you're not yet a Christ follower, you could still have a good marriage or you could be living a a lifestyle of a celibate single. But what if you're not a Christ follower? I think a good example would be like driving a car that doesn't have power steering. Yes, you can still make that right-hand turn, but it sure takes a lot more effort, doesn't it? Why wouldn't you want the power of Christ in your life, allowing his love to fill you to overflowing so that it spills out onto everyone around you? You may be here on Sunday mornings singing the songs, reading the words of the Bible, and listening to the prayers, but all of that is being done in your own strength and done so that you can feel better about yourself. Today can be the day that all of that changes. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. This morning our prayer is going to be an interactive prayer. In other words, I expect you to participate in this. I want to first pray for people who are married that you would love like Jesus does, that you would dedicate your relationship with your spouse to putting their needs in front of your own. And so I'm asking, if you're married this morning and you want to rededicate yourself to loving your husband or your wife the way that Jesus loves his bride, the church, would you stand with me and would you pray this prayer with me? I don't want you to be bashful. I think there are probably many of you. You're not saying that my marriage is bad. You're just saying I want it to be better. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, help me to love my spouse. 
as sacrificially as you love your bride, the church. Help me to put their needs and their feelings above my own. Remind me to pray for my spouse every day and throughout the day. And thank you, Jesus, for showing me how to do this and for giving me the desire to do this. Amen. Please remain standing. For those who are single and want to focus on God, let me pray for you now. Father, I pray for those who do feel lonely, who may feel like they're missing out on something. Father, I pray that their focus would be on you and not on on a partner. I pray that they would use their time wisely and not just focus on themselves. And so if you are single this morning, whether you've never been married, whether you're divorced, or whether you're widowed, and you would like to dedicate yourself to loving God by serving him with the time you have, would you stand with us and would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, you know my desire to share my life with a Christian spouse. Would you ease my feelings of loneliness? And grant me peace in this solitude. Help me to use this time in my life to grow in dependence on you and to serve you with all of my strength. Amen. And would you also remain standing? This morning, if you have never admitted to God that you are a sinner, And apart from him, you are headed to an eternity of separation from God and all things good. And if you're ready to turn to God in repentance, would you stand with the rest of us? No matter your age, no matter your marital status, and would you pray with me? Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I know I deserve to be punished because of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me. And then he rose from the dead in triumph over sin and death. I trust Jesus alone as my Savior. Thank you for the forgiveness and everlasting life I now have. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're not standing yet, would you join us now? Uh, If you prayed that last prayer to accept Jesus into your life. I do have a a new believer's Bible that I would like to give to you to help you in that journey. Just come and talk to me afterwards. Also, for anyone that that would desire prayer this morning, I'll be up here. Um, The elders will join me as well. We would love to pray for you. If you did commit yourself to following Christ this morning, would you just fill out that card in the rack in front of you and take that to the hub and drop it off? And then also, don't forget to sign up for the World Missions Dinner on Friday because today is the deadline for that. For our benediction, I want to take us back to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verse, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another 
and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. God bless you and go in peace.